All right. Hey, if uh, I thought I was encouraged, I don't know if you were, but I was encouraged when Josh was tallying up all the past year's totals of how much money we've raised and how many kids we've helped. And uh, that's such an encouragement when you kind of put it all together in years like that. So Josh, thanks for, thanks for letting us uh, partner with you, you know, in this. And if you're interested in the Chicago Marathon uh, right after the service, just pop over here and uh, let's see if we can keep adding to the totals and the numbers. So, but I want to start this morning uh, with a little family chat. So here we are with the stool. And uh, if you've been coming to Calvary for the past number of weeks, you know we're in the middle of this sermon series on sexuality and gender. And uh, I've been doing a lot of family chats uh, to come into my sermons uh, for this, but uh, we need one this morning. We're going to be uh, tackling the topic of homosexuality this morning. And I know that's a, just, it's just a particularly uh, touchy topic in our culture. It's touchy here in our church. And I worked on this sermon all day Wednesday. Wednesday, is my, Wednesday and Thursday are my sermon writing days. And I worked on this sermon on Wednesday and Thursday, and it, it wasn't coming together, so I came in on Friday, spent the whole day on Friday, and uh, by the end of the day Friday, it's, it just wasn't working, and uh, so I, I had to pick a whole new text, and I came in on Saturday morning early, I spent all day Saturday to about 9 p.m. Uh, writing the sermon, and then got up this morning early and finished it about 8.45 uh, this morning, so, um, so I'm feeling a little tired, I'm feeling a little tired. But uh, it's, I don't have a lot of anxiety or like fear and trembling about this sermon. That, that's not the point of all that. I just, I really feel the burden of wanting to do right by this topic. I don't feel like Christians have handled this topic uh, particularly well. Uh, and the, the message that the church has given out on this topic has been uh, ham-fisted in many respects. So as I was preparing the sermon, I was thinking, okay, who am I speaking to? Like, who are the people that will listen to this sermon, and I was kind of just jotting down some of the different potential audiences, right? And so there's, there's the gay non-Christian who rejects the traditional Christian sexual ethic, and that's a lot of our culture uh, here in and around Calvary. It's a lot of the culture in North America. Um, I don't know that we have many gay non-Christians here this morning. We have non-Christians that come quite frequently to Calvary, but you know, gay non-Christians, I don't know, but maybe that's someone here this morning. There are gay Christians who also reject the Christian and traditional Christian sexual ethic. Then there are gay Christians who affirm the traditional Christian sexual ethic. Then there are straight non-Christians who reject the Christian sexual ethic, straight Christians who reject the traditional Christian sexual ethic, and straight Christians who affirm the traditional Christian sexual ethic. And so we've got a whole bunch of different sort of perspectives on this. And the reality is that we live in a time right now and in a culture where in the last 25 to 30 years, issues of sexuality and gender, and particularly issues of homosexuality, are just up for grabs. There's a lot of tumult uh, in our culture on this. So I don't know where you're coming from this morning. Probably most of us, I'm, I'm, this is very fair to say, most of us are straight Christians who affirm the traditional Christian sexual ethic. Right? But that's maybe not all of us. And I know particularly for the younger generation, there's a lot of folks that are really questioning the traditional Christian sexual ethic. And so wherever you're coming from, my prayer for you this morning is that you would just hear what the Spirit has to say to you and, uh, and that the Lord would minister his love to you. 
And so if you're coming uh, from the gay community, I would just say, one, I'm sorry for how you've been treated by Christians and by the church uh, in the past. I don't, as I said, I don't feel like we have been, it's not been our best look uh, with how we've handled this in many respects. And so I'm very glad that you're here and even willing to listen, and, and I'm sorry for how, uh, how uh, we have handled this issue in the past. My prayer going forward is that we all would get better at handling this issue. And I'm really praying for clarity. Right? I just, uh, less of like a sales pitch and like this is what we should all believe, like less of that. And just like what is the Christian sexual ethic? Because I think there's a lot of confusion on this as it relates to homosexuality. So I'm praying for clarity and just praying that the Lord would just speak to each of our hearts in the ways that we need to hear it. And if I say stuff that's wrong or incorrect, that the Lord would just kind of block that uh, from our hearts, right? But that we would take from this what we need uh, to hear. So I'm going to pray to that end, and then we're going to get into uh, our text this morning. Father, thank you for the grace of Christ. Thank you uh, that you love us, that you love the whole world. And uh, God, forgive us for the ways that we haven't always communicated that love in the ways that we should. And I pray that we would... Uh, even this morning, we would live into that love. And I pray for all of us here. We're coming from a lot of different perspectives, perhaps, or a lot of different possible perspectives. And I just pray that you would bring clarity about what your word teaches and what it doesn't teach, and that you would draw us to yourself. Lord, you have uh, given us sexuality and gender to communicate your love for the world. So I pray that uh, we would find your love for us uh, even here in this text and in this sermon this morning. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. All right, well, if you've got your Bibles, you can open them up uh, to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And I'm going to read our text for us in just a moment. But as you're getting your way to 1 Corinthians 6, uh, let me just say a few words. As I've mentioned, we've been in this sermon series now for four weeks. And I want to just... I know some of you are, uh, you know, you're hit or miss on church the last four weeks, and so you may not have been around for all of it. Maybe you've been gone the last uh, three and you've missed those sermons. Let me just take a brief moment to recap uh, where we've been and to set up where we're going. So our sermon series is working off of the foundational text of Ephesians 5, 22 through 33, which teaches us that human sexuality has been created, has been ordained by God, as a sign or a type or like a miniature living model that reveals or refers to the relationship between Christ and the church. So from that starting premise, we've taken two key insights. First, insofar as our sexuality was made by God as a sign that is meant to reveal Christ and the church, the relationship between Christ and the church then orders or governs all human sexual conduct. So human sexual ethics, or Christian sexual ethics more specifically, aren't just randomly constructed, kind of piecemeal bit here and there. They're organized around the heavenly vision of Christ and the church. The Bible calls Christians to behave sexually in the earthly sphere in a way that reflects how Christ and the church behave spiritually in the heavenly sphere. And the second key insight that we're taking from this, and I think this is even the, the more important, and this I think is really at the heart of, of anything, everything I've wanted to say, 
is that insofar as our sexuality is a sign that refers to Christ and the church, the real thing is Christ and the church, not human sexuality or marriage or sex. Human sexuality and marriage and sex are just types and shadows of the real thing. And what that means is that we can have the real thing, we can participate in Christ and the church, even if we don't have all the fullness of all the types and shadows. To have the archetypal reality of Christ and the church is to have everything that matters for human flourishing, even if we don't have every every aspect of the type. So this morning, we're taking this typological approach, looking at what Christ and the church paradigm teaches us, or the implications of it, for homosexuality and sexual identity. So our text this morning is 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. And if you don't have a Bible, you can find one there in the pew rack in front of you. You can pick that out, page 955. But if you've got that text, stand up uh, and let's read our scripture together. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. The word of the Lord. may be seated. From this text, I want to draw three principles or three points of truth, points of application. And the first, the first one is this, homosexual sexual activity is not compatible with the Christian sexual ethic. So 1 Corinthians uh, is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth, and he's addressing a number of issues. And in chapter 5 and chapter 6, he's some, addressing some issues that have sprung up in the church in Corinth. And in chapter 5, we read about a man who seems to have taken up uh, with his stepmom. And then in chapter 6, we read about all the divisions and disagreements in the church that have gotten so out of hand that the Corinthian Christians are taking their grievances with each other to the Roman law courts and they're suing each other. And Paul is writing to say, these are terrible witnesses to the, Christian, to the Corinthian community. You're compromising your witness, so knock it off. And then in verse 9, it's like he's passing the smelling salts under the noses of the Corinthians. And he says, hey, listen, people, you got to wake up. God has sent Jesus to redeem you. And you're living like a bunch of unredeemed pagans. You're living like people who will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do you not remember what I taught you? Verse 9 now, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Don't be deceived. And then he lists the sorts of activities that mark the people who won't inherit the kingdom of God. And this is one of his vice lists. He has actually three vice lists. So there's one here with kind of a list of things that mark the kind of people that won't inherit the kingdom of God. He has one in Ephesians and he has one in Galatians. And they, they both cover much of the same thing, not all of the same things, right? But kind of generally all the same things. But our concern here with this vice list, and this is the only uh, vice list where Paul mentions homosexual practice. 
It's mentioned as one of the vices. Now, before moving on, I want to just briefly answer a question or address a question that may pop into your mind. Does this mean that all gay people are going to hell? Well, I would just say to that briefly, it means no more or less than what it means about the other vices on Paul's vice lists. Other forms of sexual immorality, greediness, alcoholism, revelry, when you go to the other vice lists, there's a lot of things on the vice list. And it's worth saying that God's grace runs very deep. And the New Testament leaves all sorts of room for us to wrestle and to struggle with our various vices. And we all have vices that are on the vice list. So how to interpret sin, redemption, and salvation, that's a, that's a whole sermon in and of itself. I'm not going to try to preach that one here this morning. But for the purposes of this morning... Paul clearly views homosexual practice as outside the bounds of the Christian sexual ethic. And what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 6 is consistent with the broad teaching of Scripture. So passages like 1 Timothy chapter 1 or Romans chapter 1, where we see that both male and female same-sex practices are prohibited. Or in the Old Testament, passages like Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 19, so the fact is, whether we like it or not, and there are many of us who don't like it, but whether we like it or not, both the Old and the New Testament have a clear sexual ethic that prohibits all sexual activities outside of a monogamous marriage between a husband and a wife. Now, as we've been seeing through our sermon series, God's entire design for human sexuality is that it would serve as a sign that points to Christ and the church. And insofar as Christ and the church relationship is an inherently fertile spiritual union, and that was what we looked at last week, it's an inherently fertile spiritual union between a heavenly bridegroom and a bride, so too human marriage was designed by God to be an inherently fertile physical union between an earthly bridegroom and an earthly bride. So that puts homosexual practice and homosexual marriage outside of the Christian sexual ethic. Now, this has been the universal Christian position for nearly the whole of the church's history. It's 2,000 years. And Christians... We inherited this sexual ethic from Judaism, which dates back almost another couple thousand years. And Judaism and the Old Testament gets its vision of sexuality and marriage from the original creation account of Adam and Eve. So the Christian sexual ethic isn't something that a bunch of grumpy evangelicals created in the 1960s as a response to the sexual revolution. This has been the position of God's people for nearly all of recorded human history. And there's no use, us Christians, trying to duck it or to pretend that that hasn't been the case. But in the last few decades, new stirrings are afoot. As the culture has shifted rapidly to the left on matters of sexuality, and as the Christian sexual ethic has become increasingly stigmatized in our culture, a number of Christian pastors and scholars have been calling for Christianity to reevaluate its sexual ethic as it relates particularly to gay marriage. Now, this is a big and it's a fractious debate, and there are people of goodwill 
on both sides of the issue and people of bad will on both sides of the issue. And whenever you have such a rapid cultural shift, which is what we're experiencing, it creates some whiplash for people. And it takes a bit of time to sort things out. So a 4,000-year-old-plus sexual ethic, all of a sudden looking to be overturned in 30 years, I mean, that, it, where do we go with that, right? It, it, it's, it's confusing for a lot of us. So no judgment if you are sincerely trying to sort out this shift. Now, the breadth of this intramural Christian debate is beyond the reach of a single sermon, but I want to address one key line of this revisionist position because I think it helps bring clarity to this issue in particular of how the church engages with homosexuality. The revisionist position goes something like this. Moses and Jesus and Paul didn't have a proper understanding of sexual orientation. But now we know better. Now we understand that sexual desire is a choice. Or sexual desire isn't a choice, rather, but is connected to a fixed sexual orientation. So given what we now know about sexual orientation, it's time to reevaluate the culturally encrusted prohibitions in the Bible against gay sexual activity and marriage. But the problem with this line of reasoning is that it's not historically accurate. The first century, the world in which the Bible is written, the New Testament in particular, the first century does in fact have the same idea of sexual orientation that we have today. So one can see this in the writings of the Greco-Roman authors. Perhaps the most obvious comes from Plato. Now, Plato was a Greek author. Maybe you've heard of him. He's still kind of famous in philosophical circles today. But he was, a, he was a, a Greek author from the 5th century BC, but he was so well known that his writings were still in vogue in the 1st century at the time of the writing of the New Testament. And Plato wrote a, uh, one of his dialogues called the Symposium. And in the Symposium, it's a drinking party with a bunch of men who have come in together, including Socrates, to give uh, speeches on love what makes true and the best kinds of love. And one of the men at the drinking party is a man named Aristophanes, and Aristophanes tells a story about an idea for a creation account that explains why people prefer the kinds of loves that they prefer. And in Aristophanes' creation account, he speculates that human beings were created at kind of single individuals front to back, though, with two faces and two kind of personalities pointing out and we became so powerful that the gods had to split us in half. And so we were cut top to bottom, and half of us went one way, and half of us went the other way. But this explains our sexual orientations, Aristophanes says, because the people that were male to male when they were split, their desire is to always reunite sexually with other males. And if they were female and female when they were split, then their desire is to reunite sexually with females. Most people, he says, were male-female when they were split, and that's why most people desired to create to, uh, to come together sexually with the opposite sex. But Aristophanes' whole speech is to extol the virtues of male-male love. He sees it as superior. In fact, he sees male-boy love as particularly superior. Or we could think of Sappho, who was a female poet, a Greek poet, in and around the same time as Plato, and her poetry, again, was also so famous that it survived all the way into the first century and was well known. 
And she, in her poetry, extols the virtues of female-to-female love. And her poetry celebrates the beauty of that. And she was on the Isle of Lesbos, which is where we have now the English term lesbian. That's where we get that term. So Plato, in his one dialogue, celebrates male-male love as the best. Sappho celebrates female-female love as the best. Ovid was another uh, Roman poet from the first century. He knew both Plato and he knew Sappho. And in his estimation, male-female love was the best. And so he wrote uh, tawdry poems about male-female sexual love. And there's other we could, others we could point to in the Greco-Roman world, but the, the Greco-Roman world has an understanding of sexual orientation. It knows that some men have a sexual preference for men, that some women have a sexual preference for women, and that some men and women have a sexual preference for both. This is very much known in the ancient world. So it's not true to say that the ancient world of the Bible didn't understand sexual orientation. The New Testament knows about sexual orientation, but all the same, it still limits sexual activity to a heterosexual marriage relationship. My first point doesn't have a ton of application here. I just want to state clearly for all of our sakes that it's not possible to get around the teaching of the Bible on this topic. The best and easiest way to get around this teaching in the Bible is simply to say that the Bible is wrong. And at least that's honest. Historically, though, when certain segments of the church have started down the road of the Bible is wrong about that, on whatever issue, the road for that segment of the church has tended to just sort of peter out until there wasn't much of a Christian road left. doesn't happen immediately, but severing the Christian faith from its inherited biblical sexual ethic begins a process of decay that over time erodes the vitality of Christian faith and witness. And the reason that that happens is because our sexual ethic is tethered to the gospel itself. Our church's sexual ethic, the Christian sexual ethic and Christian sexual conduct is meant to be a living picture of the gospel, a picture of Christ and the church. So the Christian sexual ethic and Christianity and its articulation of the gospel, these rise and fall together. And I suspect that you know, I certainly know Christians who have untied the connection between sexuality and faith and who are now no longer meaningfully Christian. And this has happened on a national scale in earnest in the past two years. Something about the pandemic seems to have triggered a tsunami of deconstruction. The number of people in the last two years and church kind of historian sociologist types who who do surveys on these things will talk about it. But the number of people in the last two years who started out intending to only reject Christianity's sexual ethic, but who have ended up rejecting Christianity entirely, it's not a small number. And like it or not, and let's be honest, many of us Christians don't like it, especially Christians that are living in progressive areas like where we live, where we feel the pressure of it, and it's a burden to have to carry it. And we just sort of rather it wasn't the case. Christianity is, for better or for worse, shackled to its sexual ethic. 
But now I want to clarify something that's often confused, and this leads to my second point. The scriptures prohibit gay sexual practice, but not gay people. So look back in our text here in verse 10. When Paul lists the types of activities that keep one out of the kingdom of God, he lists men who practice homosexuality. And the simple point I want to make here is that the New Testament focuses on behavior, not on orientation. As we've just noted, the New Testament is aware of all the diverse sexual preferences and orientations that exist in the Roman world. But it largely just sidesteps all of that. The early church didn't have much of an opinion about sexual orientation. Arguably, I think, the church had no opinion about sexual orientation. Christianity was open to anyone and to everyone. It didn't matter your ethnicity, your gender, your social standing, your status as slave or free, your economic standing, or your sexual preferences or orientations. From a Christian perspective, when it came to converting into Christianity, your sexual orientation was simply a non-issue. And when it came to continuing to live as a Christian, your sexual orientation was a non-issue. Sexual preferences were as varied in the Roman world as they are today. So some Roman men were sexually oriented towards women, some were oriented towards men, some preferred their young slave boys or girls, some preferred prostitutes, some were oriented towards the wives of other men, some men preferred group sexual orgies, some women were oriented towards strong gladiator types, some were oriented towards wealthy men, some women were sexually oriented toward their own male or female slaves, Some women were oriented towards other freeborn women, and many were, in what terms we would use today, were bi or polysexual. They were oriented to a wide variety of sexual activities. But Christianity didn't care about any of that. The Christian sexual ethic was only focused on sexual practice, not sexual preference. But sometimes I think Christians have muddled this up. We've claimed, or have at least implied, That homosexuality itself, homosexual orientation, is inherently a barrier between the gay person and God. And that in order to come to God, you have to have it washed away. Or that if you truly come to God, it will be washed away. But listen, very few of us, before or after our conversion, have a sexual orientation that precisely matches the picture of Christ and the church. I can tell you from experience that most 16-year-old males of the human species do not have a sexuality that is naturally oriented towards the picture of Christ's relationship with the church, nor do most adults. But that doesn't matter. Our sexual orientations, our sexual preferences, what turns us on sexually, none of this is a barrier to our relationship with God. God doesn't care what kind of people or the number of people or which gender of people we are most easily turned on by. He only asks that we surrender our sexual actions to his will. We can't really control our orientations or our preferences or our desires. It's not like flipping a switch. God isn't asking us to do that. So I'm friends with three Christian men, 
all of whom are same-sex attracted, all of whom are happily married with children. And their same-sex orientation was no barrier to them becoming a Christian, and their same-sex orientation has been no barrier to them living faithfully as a Christian. Marital sex may not be everything they dreamed it would be when they were 16, but that's true for many, many Christian heterosexual marriages as well. When Paul says in verse 11 that we are washed, sanctified, and justified in the name of Jesus, he's not talking about having our sexual orientations washed away. He's talking about having our sinful sexual practices washed away. For the New Testament, who a person most naturally or easily prefers to be sexually active with is just irrelevant. And the point to be made is that Christianity was open to everyone regardless of sexual orientation. Now, someone might have a question in their mind. I got a question between services about the difference between desire and orientation, and that's a fair distinction to be made. Send me an email if you want to, and I'll try to explain it, but it would distract us. But the point that I want to make here is that as it relates to orientation, the New Testament just simply doesn't address that issue because it's not important. What's important is sexual conduct. And that brings us to our last and most important point, our identity. Our identity is in Christ, not our sexuality. Verse 11, Paul uses the term washed as a reminder to the Corinthians about their new baptismal identity. He says, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. This term washed is is pointing them to and reminding them of their baptismal entry into the covenant people of God. Baptism is the entry right into the church. And so as these Corinthian Gentile pagans are brought into the church, they're passing through the waters of baptism. And Paul is reminding them that they have been washed. Such were some of you. You were like this, like the people who are not entering the kingdom of God. But you were passed through the waters of baptism. You've been washed, justified, sanctified. You have a new reality. You have taken on the name of Jesus and been placed into the Godhead with Christ by the Spirit of God. And this is the same basic point that he makes in Galatians 3, 28, when he says, for as many of you were baptized into Christ, you have put on Christ. That's what it means to become a Christian. We put on Christ. It's a new identity, right? The old has gone, the new has come, as he says in 2 Corinthians 5. Or he says this here in Colossians. He says, If you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Your identity now is with Christ. So seek the things that are of Christ. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you've died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. There's a new you, a new a new way of being. When Christ, who is your life, appears, Christ is your life. When he appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So put to death, therefore, whatever is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil, desire, covetousness, and so forth. And the whole message of the New Testament is that our truest identity, our truest self, is the Christ self that Christ is making us to be. Our identity is not defined by the things of this world, but by Christ. 
But it's this clash between our Christ identity and sexual identity that makes the subject of homosexuality so fraught. In the 21st century Western world, following in the wake of civil rights, our culture has taught us to think of our sexual orientations as intrinsic to our identity as human beings. In the same way that we have ethnic minorities, we have sexual minorities. And this connection between civil rights and gay rights, it didn't just happen. There's an intentionality by gay rights activists to connect these two things together. This isn't some grand conspiracy theory. You can just, it's just a matter of public record. The gay rights activists consulted with a lot of the civil rights activists to figure out how best to do this. And so in the same way that my blackness or my brownness or being Chinese or whatever ethnicity is intrinsic to being me, so too my heterosexuality or my homosexuality or my bisexuality is intrinsic to being me. I am my sexual orientation. And to deny me the ability to live out my sexual orientation or orientations is to deny me. Now that sort of thinking is just foreign to the New Testament and it's foreign to the world of the New Testament. The world of the New Testament tended to think of the various sexual orientations as preferences or appetites, but not identities. Some people like chicken, some people like beef, some people like fish. Some preferred red wine, some white, some rose. Some like men, some like women, some like both. Sexuality was just another bodily appetite, just another preference. The New Testament and the world of the New Testament didn't invite people to wrap one's identity, one's sense of self around one's particular sexual preference. But we have. And here I don't just mean that gay people have or that non-Christians have. I mean that nearly all of us Christians have done this too. Some of the pushback that I've received in this sermon series has come from singles who disagree with my assertion that singles can live a thriving and joy-filled life apart from sex and marriage. And in one email, a dear single congregant wrote that while she believed that it was possible for a mature Christian to have a good life as a single person, she didn't believe it was possible to have a great life. That marriage and sexuality and sex were necessary goods for full human flourishing. And maybe some of you feel that way too, even if you haven't written me an email about it. When you think about your life, you can't imagine being truly joy-filled and thriving apart from sex and a happy marriage. And it's not just single people who feel this way. Some of you who are in struggling marriages, you think the same. Your marriages are not what you hoped that they would be. And you can't imagine actually having the fullness of joy in the midst of your flagging marriage. Listen, unwanted singleness, whether gay or straight, that's hard. And an unhappy marriage, that's hard too. And I don't want to make light of either of those. 
Those can be legit forms of suffering. And I don't pretend that finding joy in the midst of suffering is easy. But what are we saying? If we say that it's not possible to have the fullness of joy in the midst of unwanted singleness or in an unfulfilled marriage. Our hearts were made to be satisfied not by earthly marriage and sex. Our hearts were made to be satisfied by Jesus. So listen, I say this as gently and as kindly, as tenderly as I can as your pastor. If you believe that only in marriage and in sex can you find the fullness of joy, then you need to repent. You need to change your mind, which is what the word repentance literally means. You need to change your mind about the sufficiency of Jesus. You have bought into the culture's lie that your identity is defined by your sexuality. Joy has a name, and his name is Jesus. And if we can have Jesus in suffering, then it's possible to have joy in suffering. I'm not asking anyone here to repent of their inability to have joy in suffering. I'm not saying it's easy to get to a place of joy in the midst of suffering. God knows that's hard for me too. Maybe you really are. You're trying to get to a place of joy in the midst of suffering. And if you are, God bless you. I'm asking you to repent of your lack of faith that such a thing is even possible. The history of the church is full of the stories of the saints who have lived lives of deep suffering, but who knew the fullness of joy at the same time. This church is full of the lives of saints who have experienced deep suffering but have known the fullness of joy at the exact same time. Sex and marriage are gifts from God, but they are not essential to human happiness and flourishing. I fear the American church has made an idol of marriage and family and sex. We defend the institution of marriage voraciously, and we start family Bible churches And we cancel church on Christmas morning because Christmas is a family day. And we vote for pro-family candidates with energy. And we have marriage conferences. And we write books about how to have great sex lives in our marriages. And all of that is fine and good, except about canceling church on Christmas day. That's not, (laughs) that is not good. But I fear that so much of all that pro-energy, pro-family energy Not all of it, but some of it, much of it. It's just a baptized idolatry of sex and marriage. We too have bought into sex as identity. And we've let ourselves believe that we can't be truly, fully human without sex, marriage, and children. But God help us, what kind of message are we sending to Christian singles and to gay people? That Jesus is just some add-on to the American dream? That his point in the Christian's life is to help us get all of the earthly goods? 
The point of Jesus in our lives, why God sent Jesus to this earth, is to teach us how to have joy even when we are losing all the earthly goods. Because we all are going to lose all of the earthly goods. That is our destiny, to lose all of the earthly goods. We have to learn how to have joy while those things slip away from us. That's why God sent Jesus. We can know the fullness of joy and flourishing because of the loving presence of Jesus in our lives. He himself is our joy, not because we're happily married and having sex. So I implore you, the gospel implores you, Jesus implores you, don't believe the lie that your truest identity is found in your sexuality or your marriage or your children. And if you think that just because you are in a contented heterosexual marriage that you are free from sexual idolatry, beware. Here's a telltale sign. This is convicting for me. When I cringe to tell my gay friend that he can't marry a man, and I'm cringing because it just seems so cruel to deny someone something so essential to human happiness. When I think of his possible conversion like martyrdom, that's the giveaway that I think sex and marriage are essential to human happiness. Not just his human happiness, but my human happiness. And I fear that we straight Christians are are afraid that Jesus really isn't sufficient for the gay person. Because we're afraid he's not really sufficient for us. Maybe this morning you're listening to this as a gay person. Perhaps you're a gay person who's not a Christian, you're same-sex attracted, you are a Christian. But as you think about Christianity, you, you don't know what you would have to offer Christianity. You think, I don't have anything to offer. Not so. What if your homosexuality is a gift that allows you to see the sufficiency of Jesus all the more clearly? What if your willful choice to forgo the heights of sexual ecstasy enable you to see the glory of Jesus in a powerful way that enables you to testify to others where true life and hope and human identity is found. We don't have to be straight to experience the fullness of the joy of Jesus. Sometimes that can get in the way of us experiencing the fullness of the joy of Jesus. The only thing that breaks the grip of idolatry is beholding the true God. And I'm going to say this in conclusion. The only thing that breaks the grip of idolatry is beholding the true God. Explanations don't do it. Arguments can't do it. Sermons can't do it. The only way to break the grip of an idol in our lives is to raise our eyes and behold what the idol points to, Jesus himself. One of my favorite books my favorite book probably is C.S. Lewis's Till We Have Faces. And in the book, the protagonist is constantly throughout the book lamenting to God about how God is hidden. He's hidden himself and he doesn't provide an answer to her suffering. She's experienced suffering. She can't find the answer to her suffering. 
But at the end, finally, God reveals himself to her, and she says, I now know, Lord, why you utter no answer, because you yourself are the answer. Before your face, questions die away. What other answers would suffice? Only words, words to be let out to battle against other words. Just words, words. If we try to come up with an answer to our own identity, apart from the person of Christ, it's not just an idea. Our faith won't survive the cultural tsunami that is underway if all we have to combat it are words, words, and more words. If the only thing that we have to offer the culture or the gay person to compensate them from the loss of their sexual identity is words, is that all we have to offer? We need more than words. We need the word of God made flesh. We need to behold him in all of his glory and have his life living and pulsing in our hearts. So I invite all of you to pray and to ask Jesus to make himself real to you in ways that you've never experienced before. Ask him to remove the barriers in your life that stand in the way of your capacity to see him. He loves you, and he wants you to know him and to know his love. He wants you to not just know the idea of his love for you or the words of his love for you. He wants you to know his love for you in the experience of him. He wants to fill your heart with his heart. And if you're seeking him in that way, and you're not finding him yet, that's okay. Just keep doing your part. Let him do his part. He'll come to you when the time is right. But for all of us, may God give us grace to behold the Son in an identity-shaping way where who he is becomes who we are. So whether we're gay, we're straight, we're single, we're married, that when we behold Christ, we see ourselves fully and truly. God, give us grace for that. Pray. We're going to sing our closing song here about pressing forward in faith because the Christian life is hard. Keep pressing forward in faith, trusting God to meet us as we take steps forward in grace. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to sing together towards that end. Father, forgive us for all the ways that we ourselves, even as good church-going, straight Christians, have so easily bought into the lie of sexual identity. We think that our identity is defined by who we are and our marriages and our sexuality and our children. God, our identity is defined in who we are in Christ. May we live into that so fully and freely and readily that that's what we have to give other people. Not just a Christian sexual ethic, but what the Christian sexual ethic points to. God, fill us up with your son. Cause us to follow him, to walk with him, even when it's hard. Sustain us with grace and just give us enough of yourself to keep us moving forward day by day and step by step. We love you. We thank you for your love for us. It's your name we pray. Amen.